0: hello and welcome to will we We make Make It it out alive i'm amy the poop detective
1: and i'm jen
0: the magical mapper welcome to episode nine fire must burn in this episode we will learn more about what a fire wants what a fire needs wildfires in the pacific northwest Using geodatabase templates to get your fire response up and running quickly, reporting how smoke affects you, and opportunities to replant after penis fires. What you don't understand is, the fire must burn. Otherwise, it's not a fire.
1: Hmm, interesting. Mm, before we get started, we wanted to announce that our awesome intern, Emily, created a YouTube channel for us, and episode 0, About Us, and episode 1, How to Track a Murder are both available and even more funny than the originals.
0: If you can believe that, which I can't, but it's true. I laughed more. Maybe they're all inside jokes, but I thought they were funny.
1: I thought it was really funny too.
0: Also, I get fact checked. So (laughs) that's hilarious (laughs) in and of itself.
1: It's super hilarious. Whack fact. What you
0: don't understand is fire must burn. This story is from several years ago, and as part of my research, I consulted with people who were there that night and asked them to retell the events from their perspective. The story got much more interesting when I heard other people's recollections of the events that went down that evening. So long ago, Jen was there. The general premise of the story is, there was a fire. There was some drinking. There was some concern about the fire continuing to burn while most people were going to bed and somebody was going to continue with the fire while they had been drinking. Also, there was an overabundance of wood that year. And our friend, we'll just call him Steve, to protect his identity. (laughs) He was continuing to add wood to the fire after quite a bit of drinking. And it was late. And we had spent the entire day foraging on the beach and in the woods and had stuffed our bellies with the delicious fruits of our labor. And we had been sitting out by the fire in the rain with umbrellas, because that's how we do. Oh, yeah. Here's where things get interesting. According to Steve, because he's one of the people I interviewed for the story, we women were trying to control him by probably by making him put the fire out. And he was not going to have any of that. (laughs) But then also, according to Steve, the event took place during the day and he was just trying to teach his son about fire, which may have happened earlier in the day, but fire must burn did not happen until much later. I also interviewed Jen, the magical mapper for this story, because she was there and she says it absolutely happened late at night and his son was already in bed.
1: Whack fact. It absolutely happened late at night. And his son was already in bed.
0: (laughs) So basically, in response to us trying to get Steve to put the fire out and come inside for the evening, Steve decided to drop some knowledge on the six or so women who were in attendance at the fire. He told us, what you don't understand is fire must burn. (laughs) Wiser words have never been mansplained to a group of outdoorsy, sciencey women. True, true. But now I love how his recollection of the story is that he was teaching his son. He thought he was teaching someone all right, who ironically enough, we're just trying to get him to stop playing with fire after a little bit of drinking.
1: A lot of drinking.
0: And we knew then, and even more so after doing the research for this episode, that preventing human-caused fires would stop most wildfires. Yes. Wildfires are also a natural part of ecosystem processes. But with the climate changing, increased droughts and new pressures from agriculture, development, forestry, and mining are leading to increased risk of wildfire, especially in urban areas. In the past two years, there has been widespread smoke impacts on the west side of the Cascades. How do fires start? Human activity, such as unattended campfires, the burning of trash, and discarded lit cigarettes, are several common causes that lead to fires. Natural causes like lightning lead to fires, but way less. Whack fact. A study last year, 2017 last year, from the University of Colorado found that 84% of all fires in the U.S. are human-caused. A study in 2019 by Jen, the Magical Mapper, <laughs> found that 86% of all fires in the last 18 years mm-hmm. were human-caused.
1: Well, cat fact. Have you heard of the Cat Express? No. Well, it's like the Pony Express, but they used cats. What? Yeah. How did they train cats? So Liege, Belgium, tried to train 37 cats to deliver the mail back in the 1870s. So, they, Are you kidding me? No. They enclosed mail in waterproof bags and tied them around the cat's necks. But you know what? It turns out <laughs> the cats weren't very good
0: at actually delivering the letters. That That actually makes perfect sense. Or to the right address, or on any kind of schedule, or even at all. So they had to abandon that plan. Yeah, that, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I was confused, but now not so much.
1: (laughs) So it seems like there's been a lot more smoke and fires in recent years. Is that true?
0: Well, we've already seen an uptick in early season wildfires this year, so the short answer is yes. But not as large as historic burns so there is kind of a larger story interesting maybe you remember way back in 2015
1: uh, no i don't you were so. like
0: only 100 years old no. then your memory was still pretty sharp but hmm. the last few Why years don't recall? have been hard okay the year that the pacific northwest experienced crazy low snowpack followed by a warm and dry summer. So anyways, it was not a great, great year for water. We saw rivers run dry. There was record low spring and summer stream flows in both Washington and Oregon. We saw fish dying from heat. Jen and I literally saw dead sturgeon. Um, In the Columbia River when we were driving back from Walla Walla that year and we were like, why are these fish dead? Oh, it's because it was already really hot and they were already dying from the heat of the river. Right. The Columbia River also lost over half of its returning sockeye salmon from river temperatures that were too hot. Mm. There were increased harmful algal blooms, which impacted shellfish, crabs, and even sea lions were seen having seizures out on the outer coast from domoic acid poisoning. Wow. And that year, we also saw an increase in fires. So, since at least 2015, we've had an increase in wildfires, in part due to the extreme drought that made everything more burnable. Mm. Those are technical terms. Yes. Yes. In 2015, there was over 10 million acres burned, with an estimated two billion spent on federal firefighter suppression. Last year, they spent over nine billion on firefighting. Whoa. So uh, we've had quite an uptick since then, even even though there was less acres burned last year. Wow. Uh, 2015 also saw the most acres burned since 1952. Prior to then, large fires were much more prevalent. So. Even 2018, we had uh, 8.7 million acres burn in the United States, but fires that large didn't happen except for prior to 1952. Back in the 80s and 90s, we were seeing less than 5 million acres burn a year, and many times we were seeing 1 to 3 million acres per year burn.
1: Interesting. So how did we get here?
0: In the late 1800s, there were several large wildfires, including the Big Burn. This was actually really fascinating to me. I don't remember learning about this, and it seems like maybe it would have been something in my upbringing since I grew up in Montana. Hmm. But apparently 3 million acres burned in Montana, Idaho, and Washington in two days. So Uh remember I was saying back in the 80s and 90s, we were seeing 1 to 3 million acres burning in an entire year. In two right. days, it that many. I mean, so there were pre 1952. There were some pretty big fires.
1: I mean, that was super crazy, and I remember that happening. And
0: <laughs> <laughs> because you were there, were right. you fighting fires back yeah, then? Was <laughs> back before you started mapping? Uh, that's just crazy. Two yeah. days, right? That's, I, it blows that's my scary. mind. So basically, in the early 1900s, the Forest Service was created in part to help manage these federal forest lands, and they decided that if the forest burned, then they couldn't be harvested and sold. So they actually had this whole forest conservation program kind of set up on, we don't want forests burn because A, I mean, it is dangerous, and B, mm-hmm. then we can't harvest that and make money off of it. But
1: so did Steve not tell them that fire must burn? I think Steve
0: was still just a wee lass back then. Oh wait. <laughs> <laughs> he might not have been advising them quite yet on the the magics of fire.
1: Oh, he wasn't a wee lad. <laughs>
0: Anywho, the early Forest Service worked to prevent and suppress fire as soon as possible. They did not fully appreciate the ecological role that fires have historically taken in many areas in the Pacific Northwest, as well as other places in the U.S. and the world. Mm -hmm. Exactly. In 1944, Smokey the Bear was introduced to help prevent human-caused fires, but it wasn't until the 1970s that there were talks of letting large fires burn if and when and where it was appropriate. Hmm. Fire management continued to change through the 80s and 90s, but acres burned have increased in recent years. So there's lots of ideas out there, both related to what the cause and solution is for forest management and fires. Hmm. So I just stole a huge chunk of story from Oregon Public Broadcasting, so I'm going to give a couple of quotes here. Some people blame the environmentalists. Rude. The reasoning goes like this. Reductions in timber harvests on federal lands have led to forests that are dangerously overstocked. If loggers had been allowed to cut more trees, we wouldn't be having all the fires. However, Nicole Strong, a forester with the Oregon State University Extension Service, explains that... The reality is more complex than that because it all depends on the forest that you're looking at. Ponderosa Pine is going to behave in a very different way than high elevation hemlock forests. And then you have south-facing slopes, which will behave much differently than cool north-facing slopes. For example, she says dry forests like those found in eastern Oregon and in parts of southwestern Oregon historically burn more frequently but less intensely than the moister forests (laughs) of the Cascades and Coast Range. So what makes sense for one may not make sense for the other. Mm. Strong also says it's important to consider the impact of historical factors. Mm. Chad Hansen, a forest ecologist with the John Muir Project of Earth Island Institute in California, says the focus on so-called excess fuels as a driver of wildfires disregards more important factors this year in oregon is an above average fire year relative to the last 40 years he says but it's not above average fire year relative to the natural fire levels before fire suppression he and some colleagues recently published a large-scale study that found thinning forest doesn't actually result in less fire all other things being equal in the same forest types the most protected forests with the least logging or no logging actually had the lowest levels of fire intensity, he said. And the forests with the least environmental protections and the most logging had the highest level of intensity. Oh, Interesting. And he says that basically by opening up the forest canopy, it lets more sunlight and wind in, which dries out the understory and then makes it more likely to burn.
1: Wow, that's fascinating
0: i thought so as well Hmm. slash terrifying
1: right so should we expect more of these extreme fires
0: heck yes Uh. the department of agriculture and i didn't mean that in such a excited way (laughs) (laughs) the department of agriculture predicts that by 2050 the number of acres burned annually could actually triple wow and according to the u.s forest service uh, longer fire seasons, bigger fires, and more acres burned on average each year.
1: Well, that's depressing.
0: Whack fact. Across the western U.S., the fire season has increased by two and a half months since the 1980s. Wow. While in California, the season is now year-round.
1: Huh. Well, cat fact. <laughs> <laughs> Less than half of the world's cats actually go crazy for catnip. And The rest don't care. Wow. Yeah. Scientists don't know why, but they do know that catnip sensitivity
0: is hereditary. Mm. Excellent.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Moving right along.
1: Anyway, <laughs> can't believe you don't like my cat facts. Well, all right, fine. What are the environmental and public health impacts of increased wildfires?
0: Snoozefest, but if you must ask, as far as the environmental and public health related impacts, for starts... Fires must burn. What? And when they burn, they burn things. That's part of uh, how the fire works, what? Jen. Don't you know?
1: Oh, I think somebody mansplained this to me before.
0: There are long-term impacts associated with air quality and the particular matter in smoke. So basically, it's uh, 2.5 microns. The particles that are that size or smaller, the ones that they're concerned with because they're so small that they can get deep inside our lungs. Mm. So they say that these are about 30 times smaller than the diameter of human hair. They're smaller than dust, pollen, or mold particles. Wow. You know, then you have to also consider things like smoke from trees is bad, but smoke from structures and the stuff inside them is potentially much worse. Right. Just, you know, the building materials can produce hazardous smoke, but in addition to that, any materials inside, including household hazardous wastes and those types of things, All of those things now in those tiny little particles are getting delivered deep into our lungs. Even small doses of the smoke can affect the chemistry inside our bodies. Mm. The tiny smoke particles can also cause or contribute to asthma, Mm. bronchitis, and pneumonia. Wow. Those that are young, old, or immunocompromised are at the greatest risk for adverse effects from smoke exposure. Mm. And interestingly enough... Even being exposed to moderately poor air quality increases your risk of diabetes also. That's fascinating. Are you going to talk on this episode at all or is it just going to be me? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, so more smoke is definitely not good for humans. And it also has some direct and indirect impacts on wildlife. Wildlife can be injured or killed, obviously, in a wildfire. Larger animals typically can escape from fire. I did read on some websites about how sometimes elk and deer are seen out in the middle of a lake where they'll actually go into the middle of the lake and let the fire burn around them. Smart. Right? But sometimes smaller animals like squirrels and foxes may not make it out alive.
1: (gasps) What? Why don't they just, like, ride on the backs of the elk and the bear?
0: I don't know what kind of fantasy world you live uh, in, Jen, but that's mm, not the world of...
1: The one where they make it out a lot. Mm,
0: I don't think you're on the right podcast. Oh. Anyways, some small animals can burrow into the ground, like frogs, they were talking about. Oh. And mice I didn't know
1: frogs burrow And
0: stuff like that. Huh. Maybe a fox could, too. Oh, yeah. A lot of birds are able to fly away, but their nests and eggs oh. may not make it out alive. Right. In addition, wildlife can be malnourished and dehydrated. And then in the months after the fire, they can get dispersed because they don't have the right habitat to be in anymore. All right. So that can lead to them spending a lot more time looking for food, water, and shelter. And that can also impact neighboring populations that maybe weren't impacted by the fire but are now having additional competition for those resources. Right. But we also have to remember that in many areas fire is a part of the natural ecosystem process. So that's true. To me the bigger concern is like how humans have mucked about with things now. And then more even so how we start fires, right? Like Mm -hmm. let's not start fires if we can help it.
1: So what are actions that we can take to minimize fire risk?
0: Well, first starts Try to do what you can to not cause fires. Hmm. Is that helpful?
1: Uh, sure. Hmm. No. So as
0: we've been talking about, humans are responsible for starting most of the fires. So it's the laundry list of all the things that hopefully everybody already knows. You know, don't leave your campfire unattended. Make sure it's completely out. Have a shovel and water nearby if you're going to have a fire. Don't burn yard debris on a windy day. Pay attention to local burn bans, which seem to be happening early and earlier, right? Right. Properly dispose of cigarette butts. Do not throw those outside ever. I mean, put them in a garbage can somewhere. If you're going to smoke, you should be responsible for those cigarette butts. Mm -hmm. They do not break down in the environment. They have hazardous chemicals associated with them. Just do not put them outside.
1: Yeah. And make sure that they're out so the trash can doesn't start on fire. Exactly.
0: And then, you know, use caution with fireworks. In addition, though, if you live in the urban wildland interface area, think about participating in the FireWise program, which provides resources for property owners to help them better protect their property from wildfires. Oh. Whack fact, the first FireWise community was created in 2004 in Oregon.
1: Oh, yeah. Cat fact, in 2015, a composer named David something or other that I can't pronounce, T-E-I-E, partnered with animal scientists and made an album just for cats. It's called Music for Cats. According to his website, the songs are based on feline vocal communication and
0: environmental sounds that pique the interest of cats. I
1: actually listened to a sample. It's not that bad. Hmm.
0: Anyways, along. <laughs> Firewise states on their website that they are looking for the presence or absence of combustible roofing materials, debris on the roofs and or in the gutters, firewood piles within 30 feet of a home, combustible vegetation within like five feet of the house, mm. and adequate tree spacing.
1: What are some current best practices for fire management?
0: Fire must burn. Mm. Well, really? there's actually, so I, this was kind of interesting. There's um, non-profit organizations out there like Conservation Northwest, which has a goal of creating more resilient forests and watersheds, hmm. as well as safer towns and communities. And basically, they recommend a combined approach of selective thinning, prescribed burning, and greater preparedness as the best solution to improve forest hmm. health and protect communities.
1: So it sounds like there's... Not really a lot of agreement on...
0: Correct. There's a lot of people that kind of want to point it Mm -hmm. and say that, you know, we just need more logging or we just need less logging, but more just allow the forest to burn when it burns. But then there's the whole like human part of it, too, that there's humans causing so many more fires. So, yes, we probably have to do a little bit of all of these things now in most national lands in most places as long as it's not impacting structures or whatever they will allow places to burn again so Mm -hmm. but in the end if the fires continue as predicted those of us in the Pacific Northwest should expect to continue to feel the heat and burn and smoke because as you have hopefully learned today fire must burn but we should also do our part to help prevent unnecessary human-caused fires and we should also be prepared if we live in areas that could be impacted by fires Mm -hmm. in addition to that maps also play a pivotal role in fire (gasps) management and the magical mapper is finally going to talk and also share a little bit more about that now what
1: Phew, it's finally time for GIS tools. Amazing. So this episode, I'm going to tell you all about geodatabase templates. Mm. So there are a lot of geodatabase templates for fire and incident command, but also also for a lot of other things like general local government and utilities, so you don't have to start from cat scratch. (laughs) (laughs) These were mostly developed by groups of experts to include the most important and common attributes. The benefit of using templates is that the user community and experts have already developed them, so you can get started with data collection more quickly. You can also easily share data with other jurisdictions. This is especially important in emergency response situations. This doesn't mean you can't modify them or add to them, But if you change existing attributes or data fields, it can become more difficult to collaborate with other cats. So geodatabase template contents can vary, but can include things such as different layers with attributes, some organized into feature data sets. Some may include tables.
0: I love tables.
1: (laughs) Some may include topology geometric networks, and some may come with symbology files as well. For those of you who don't know what these things are, keep listening because I'll explain them in future episodes. It's easy to download and import these templates. They typically come as XML schema files, which basically what that means is it's just a file that contains all of the fields and domains and settings and everything that you need, and you can create an empty new geodatabase and then import the schema and then GIS magically does the rest for you. Magic! You may still need to set up permissions or other settings like that if you're using an enterprise geodatabase, that means a, one that m- multiple people can use at the same time, but everything else is ready to go. So I'll link to some resources in the GIS tools blog, including templates specific to wildfire response and local government and other templates. I will explain a lot of those other terms in future episodes.
0: Mm, You're gonna have to come back for more if you want to learn about topology.
1: Or you can Google it. In this citizen science segment today, I'm going to cover two opportunities: one citizen Mm, science, a twofer, a twofer. (laughs) Actually, one citizen science tool and one stewardship opportunity. Okay, three stewardship opportunities. What? It's a fourfer. Uh, okay, so first I want to talk about Smoke Sense. and this is a downloadable app developed by the EPA.
0: I totally had this app last year.
1: So the app has two goals, and one's to educate users of the potential health impacts of wildfire smoke, which we just did a little bit, but there are a lot more facts in the app.
0: I don't know. We, I think we dropped more facts here because we just mm-hmm. dropped like a lot of facts That's about true. fire.
1: That was a lot of facts. The second is to collect information. Mm. So... During times when you're impacted by wildfire smoke, you can log your impact and answer questions about how the smoke is affecting your health as well as how thick the smoke is in your area, and other factors. And it helps scientists and doctors better understand the day-to-day impacts of wildfire on people so that they can better issue recommendations to protect your health in these instances. It's also fun to use because you earn badges.
0: Jen loves badges.
1: I just downloaded it, and I already got a badge for looking
0: at the map. Which made her doubly excited because she got to look at a map and she got a badge.
1: I'm a sucker for badges. Cat fact. Amy, I know you told us that a group of cats is called a clowder, but did you know a group of kittens born to the same mommy cat is called a Kindle? They're actually called an e-reader.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was a dad joke. <laughs> oh, Moving on, the stewardship opportunity I want to talk about is with the Cascade Forest Conservancy. So they have a citizen science group called GPS. That's actually Gifford Pinchot Stewards. So very confusing. Right. And I want to talk about a few of their volunteer opportunities. Oh, a hummingbird.
0: Fact. You guys can't see it.
1: Uh, So on June 29th, there's a volunteer trip to conduct prescribed fire prep. So this involves collecting information about the amount and location of dead or downed trees and woody debris, the depth of the duff and litter, and that's natural vegetation litter, not like garbage.
0: Not the beer from the Simpsons. Right,
1: exactly. And understory vegetation. This is important to know before a prescribed burn because it affects fire behavior and risk, as well as smoke production and ecological consequences. Fascinating. So the other opportunities are all about collecting seeds from native shrubs and grasses, and then, later, spreading the seeds in areas that were impacted by more intense fire activity.
0: So, kind of helping restore areas a little quicker than they would come back naturally, and making sure the more native species Mm -hmm. are coming in.
1: Exactly. So, a seed collection trip is planned for August 24th to 25th, and a seed spreading trip is October 5th through 6th, and... Both of these trips involve camping. Yeah, So I'll link to their website if you'd like to sign up for these or other volunteer trips with the Cascade Forest Conservancy.
0: Awesome. So there you have it. The end of episode 9. We hope you learned that fire must burn. And the fires will keep burning. And hopefully we will make it out alive. Hopefully. But Maybe not without lung disease and heart disease and the diabetes from increased smoke in our air.
1: Stop causing fires, people. Seriously.
0: We also shared a little about how you can look smarter by using a geodatabase template to quickly get your data standardized. Mm -hmm. And finally, we discussed some different ways that you can interact with fire from collecting data for EPA's smoke sense or opportunities to prep forests. for prescribed burns or reseed areas that have been impacted by particularly intense wildfires. Yeah. Please join us for our next episode, How to Keep Your Head Above Water While
1: Recreating This Summer. And no, we're not talking about drowning.
0: We're talking about poop, of Of course. course.
1: Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please let us know what you think. At outalivepodcast.com or facebook.com dot slash will we make it out alive. Also, please check out and subscribe to our new YouTube channel, which is it is Will We Make It Out Alive Podcast. Excellent.
0: <laughs> Till next time. Will we, we make, make it, it out alive? alive? My sources say no.